Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Brian Skersha. Today, we're talking about Last Epoch. Developed by 11th Hour Games, it was released in Steam Early Access in 2019. There's not really spoilers for this game, but I guess if there were, we would be talking about them. So uh, heads up if you are sensitive <laughs> to that. Uh, so Josh, you brought this game to my attention. It's been around a little while. We are just getting to it here in 2023. Tell me a little bit about it. Oh, that's right. Um, I actually started playing this game back in 2020, and it actually made my top 10 games of the year list back then. You can check that out on our website for all the gory details. Um, <laughs> but I loved the game back then. Uh, I liked its fresh take on the skills system for uh action RPG slash Diablo-like. So really enjoyed it then. And then in 2023, it's still in early access, but it just launched its multiplayer beta, which seemed like a great time to drag a friend along and revisit (laughs) the game. And I was happy to come along for that. Uh, Yeah, we played a little bit of multiplayer with this game. And, um, you know, for a game that, like, just launched this multiplayer beta, it worked pretty well. Like, I I didn't really notice any hiccups of any sort um, from a multiplayer perspective, although we did come to it a couple months after perhaps that first came out. Um, All in all, uh, a really fun ARPG, I would say. I I enjoyed it a lot. I'm surprised it took so long to get to that multiplayer point. I would imagine that should have, you know, for this type of game, I I would have thought it'd be a little earlier on the the chart, but it's definitely not a simple thing, so I understand. It's kind of a... We're going to make some comparisons to Diablo 4 probably a couple times throughout this cast because, you know, that game just came out too, but the always online nature of Diablo 4 versus the, oh, I guess we're going to throw some online stuff in it nature of this game is, I think, perhaps um, emblematic of certain design sensibilities. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, um, I, you will be making those comparisons. I have not played Diablo 4 to date as, as we record this in the summer of 2023, but um, I'd imagine it's around the corner for me. Uh, it is ironic that I bought and played a new ARPG right as Diablo 4 was coming out, but uh, eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think, um, at least for me, Diablo 2 occupies such a hallowed space in my gaming canon. You know, that was just one of those games that was so... Uh, fundamental for me so I've been looking for something that's lived up to that high I got playing that game for a while now and this was the first kind of ARPG that I thought kind of reached those heights we should definitely talk a little more about the the other entrants in the genre because I have to wonder like did you for example play Path of Exile or Grim Dawn or Titan Quest or any of those Oh, Titan Quest, Path of Exile, Torchlight, played them and bounced. (laughs) What about Grim Dawn? I feel like that's the one everyone always overlooks. I've overlooked it. Okay, fair enough. Um, Well, I'll tell you about Grim Dawn and why it is actually my favorite of the the Diablo contenders. Anyway, let's get into it. Uh, Last Epoch, this is, as as Josh mentioned, uh, a game that's been around a little while. It actually had a 2018 Kickstarter campaign uh, that met its goal of uh, 250k back in August of 2018, and uh, yeah, I mean, 
boy, I think they launched an alpha or a demo shortly after that to to the uh, patrons or the the Kickstarters there, yeah? Uh, That's correct. They um, had the alpha for for people who donated enough money. And I took a look at that Kickstarter page. There are some people who are big into the game. Um, I think the highest donation level was something like $10,000 that you design a boss in the game. And I think there might have been four people who took them up on that. Unbelievable. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) honestly, like this is probably like the best case scenario, having a Kickstarter that makes good on its promise, right? Like these guys are still working on this five years later. Um, That alone is is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Kickstarter. I feel like games don't get kickstarted so much these days. It used to be a big thing a decade ago, but less so these days. I think there's been too many people who promised the moon and then weren't (laughs) able to deliver because, you know, it's pretty far away, the moon. What, you mean two guys in their garage can't make a 3D MMO dragon riding RPG? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But no, uh, exactly. To your point, like I I feel like there were people that just started to take advantage of the system and the shine came off the apple pretty quick. Um, That being said, yeah, not so. Still in early access on Steam, still adding features. You know, I think multiple updates came out during the time that we were playing this for. Uh, recording and you know at this point the majority of all the core gameplay systems are there story contents pretty well fleshed out five playable classes a bunch of mastery classes and game systems are in place like it's it's a game it's a real game like they they don't need that early access tag anymore and i feel like pretty soon they won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're at version i think 0.9.1 now i think the multiplayer beta came in at 0.9 uh but yeah you know like this was one of my favorite games of three years ago and here it is still chugging along in development uh so good for them for adding the features but i'm glad this game is also supporting them uh there seems to be a great community around the game people who really love it and like playing it and they're able to you know keep paying the developers to make more of the game that they love we call that a virtuous cycle yeah i would say so um and there's also a lot to recommend in this game i'm sure we're going to get into it but i think it does have some unique hooks that i haven't really seen anywhere else in this arpg genre and for a genre that does sort of tend to trend towards the most popular iteration of it aka diablo that is interesting in its own right oh how so what are you what are you seeing oh the forging system for sure stands out to me as something really unique um oh that's true that's true yeah we'll we'll get into that later um let's talk about what this game actually uh is and does like the setting and the the stakes and the plot um what you are doing in this game um, this game is set in the world called Etera across several disparate timelines. Uh, there is a void encroaching on everything. You, as the uh, protagonist, uh, stumble upon some shards that eventually make up a thing called the Epoch that um, causes the void to win and consume the entire world. But you end up in a place outside of time, uh, unable to be reached by the void, and using that Epoch, you travel back in time to stop the creation of the void. It's very Chrono Trigger, you know? Very much so, yeah. Um, And it's kind of like you see the map, the same uh, world map in the different eras, and you're kind of like, oh, here's the large cities we're going to, and seeing what they're like back, like, you know, not much of a city around when the dinosaurs were rummaging around the place. Oh, man, can we pause on this map for a minute? Like, I think if there's one thing that hooked me immediately with this game, it's this world map. Um, Just 
immediately being able to go in and one see it gorgeously rendered it's a beautiful world map across four uh i guess five different ages and seeing how as you said it evolves over time seeing the void slowly encroach cities pop up and decay and then eventually just a black hole with some islands it's really striking and makes you wonder a lot like oh when will i get to visit that place or what was going on here during this timeline and but for the most part, you hit those things. Like, this game delivers on some of those, or a lot of those mysteries. It is a really cool bit of, um, I guess, early storytelling they do. Because uh, you find out about the time travel pretty early on. And I think you might even be able to see it on your map before then. But again, it's not like you're going to stumble into this game not knowing it's about time travel. They're pretty upfront <laughs> with that. Uh, but again, like, looking at that map in the different eras, um, seeing... It's be you kind of, kind of like I don't know it's kind of like a where's Waldo sort of thing where you're just like what happens with this over here oh uh, there's another enemy lands down here or something like that um, and they do they kind of have these stages you could think of the game's acts as being divided into different eras uh, where like at first you're in the void and you're trying to escape the void or mm-hmm. stop the void then you're in the imperial era which the it's like an empire of undead and then you're in the divine era after that trying to stop this clash of the gods or something um, so you, you kind of go through all these different eras and they're kind of like kind of like these uh, different stages or worlds uh, due to the different enemy types you're fighting, but it will also um, throw in time rifts that go from one area to another um, that you aren't able to get to any other way. So even if you're fighting the undead right now, you have a bunch of undead bashing weapons or something, you might fight a bunch of uh, fire dragons in the primitive era right after that or something like that. So I thought that was a fun way to kind of mix things up, and it's not just like, oh, you're playing the volcano level, here's two hours of volcano. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Um, for uh, To be frank, I think the game's opening act is a little weak in terms of it's keeping you in that imperi- or that ruined era a little too long. Um, you're, you're sort of running away from the void, trying to get to the place where you're sort of trying to figure out what you're going to do about it. And the ruined era, it's not pretty. Um, I guess maybe to just quickly list them out uh, since we've, we've mentioned them all, the primal era, dinosaurs, verdant, the divine era, gods are walking among men, imperial era, the rise of humanity and its civilization, ruined era, the void is encroaching and the end of time. The void has encroached. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been encroached. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's definitely a lot going on there, but I feel like maybe spending a little less time early on or, or maybe making those um, forays into the uh, less black and gray and purple um, a little more frequent early on uh, would be helpful for me as a hook. But to your point, like once you do get going and you're starting to you know, have these time rifts, uh, be an impetus for like surpassing certain areas or you know you go back in time and lower the bridge something like that like it's neat i i really enjoyed that mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of like um a lock and key system almost with what they're doing like the actual mechanics go back to this past time or go forward to this future time when all the guards are dead and it's easy to walk in and grab the thing you need. Um, but it's still kind of like a fun storytelling conceit. Yeah. One, one that I really liked was uh, going back in time, I believe from the Imperial era to the 
divine era to find and kill a general or a, a high-ranking soldier so you could get his badge so you could go forward in time and enter a stronghold um was mm-hmm. kind of neat like there's there's all kinds of little things like that you know the bridge is out at this point go back in time to fix it so it's fixed when you go forward in time and you can progress um it's a it's a fun hook um i don't think it like super uh is the hook that makes this game unique but it is a fun one for sure um if we're talking about the thing that makes um <laughs> the thing that makes this game unique uh, again i would say it's the forging thing but maybe we should set the stage a little more cuz i think another uh, perhaps interesting thing about this game is the skills and we can't talk about the skills without first talking about the classes yeah oh very much so the classes are all the diablo 2 classes but given different <laughs> names so there's no copyright infringement but you have your necromancer your sorcerer your druid your barbarian and your paladin and i remember some of their names for this game hold on hold on <laughs> I've, I've got the names it's uh Sentinel equals Paladin, Acolyte equals Necromancer, Mage equals Sorcerer, Primalist equals Druid, and Rogue equals Amazon, I suppose. Well, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down, too, because I was like, oh, yeah, it's just Diablo 2. Cool. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm cool with it. It's a, I, f- I feel it's almost more homage than anything else at this point, because, again, that game was so fundamental, oh, not yeah. just for me. Um, but I do think one of the interesting things about this game um, is that they do have uh, your base class, and then when the game's fully released, each of those base classes will have three uh, mastery classes that you can skill into later on. And the ways, the different ways that you can play the characters, there's a huge variety in being a mage, for example. Like, there are probably a half dozen melee mage builds um, where you normally think like, oh, Diablo 2, I'm going to be um, I'm going to be slinging spells from a distance. Same thing with a necromancer. Like, um, I've played two necromancers in this game, one for my first long playthrough, and the second one I think I got just as far, uh, but completely different play styles in each of them. Um, I don't think I had minions in my second necromancer playthrough which almost seems like blasphemy yeah let's let's uh, enumerate this a little bit because i really liked how evocative this was and, and i have a little graphic um that they put on their website it's like a circle and there's five the five classes and then with each one there's an outer circle where the three mastery classes that you can choose are and um for example the mage as you mentioned can become a rune master a spellblade or a sorcerer uh, the acolyte which is the necromancer prototype can become a warlock a necromancer or a lich um and mm-hmm. as you said like they all play completely differently uh, i played as a rogue because amazon was my go-to for diablo 2 and they can become a falconer a marksman or a blade dancer so you can have that as you mentioned that melee class perhaps a little summoning action there with a falconer uh, i chose marksman because i just wanted to go straight bow killer and uh yeah it, it played very much like a, a amazon from say your diablos there's almost kind of like a genre familiarity where you're you saw the screen you're like oh amazon i love that i'm gonna go with the amazon Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's where i kind of think it helps out like if they had five different classes different mixes of skills and whatnot that's that's fine too but it's almost like playing into the nostalgia factor a little bit a little bit like that if you know you know right (laughs) (laughs) or if you know what you like to play yeah yeah that's also very true uh stealth archer anyone um (laughs) (laughs) everyone's a stealth archer come on yep (laughs) um but to 
to be fair, I think there, I mean, this genre is always going to have a lot of sort of common elements in it. So it's not like we're bashing it for this. I, I don't think, I think this is more so just a, um, we're going to stick to what's work and put our, or stick to what works and put our own twist on it. And I think they, they successfully twisted here um, for uh, to talk about, you know, we've talked about the class choices, but I think where the choices really start to matter is in those skills, because every skill in this game has its own skill tree. Your skills got skills. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that about this game. Like, um, just, I, I don't know. I, I love it, Diablo 2. I hardly ever played past level like 32 or 33 or so. Because you get to 30, you unlock your final skill for the class, and then you can like go back and do nightmare mode. Um, but then at that point, everything you're doing is just like adding a percentage bonus onto what your build currently is. And for me, the so much of the fun of the game was kind of like building that class up um and once you stopped getting shiny new things like the only thing they had at that point was the loop or i'm sorry the the loot drops the number goes up loop yep i i agree with you and i think the interesting thing about the skills in this game is they will fundamentally alter like how a skill acts in certain things if you take a certain skill within the skill yeah no it's fantastic like um i think you start off with you, you can have up to five skills you're mastering over the course of the game, um, but you start off with, like, you have one skill tree, then you have two skill trees at level eight, and then you get your third one at level 20, and it's like, okay, you can use the regular skills, but it's, you know, your skilled skills that really, like, rack up the damage and start doing the combos and affect the way you play. Like, it could be something like it changes fire damage to ice damage, or it could be something like... a you punch someone with the skill and it launches a completely different skill. So if you've comboed that up too, if you have the synergy over there, then that's a way you go for. It's really, really impressive how well they iterated on all of the skills that they have in play. Um, and on top of that, there's also a whole list of passive skills that you can choose to, to take as well that are associated with your class and your mastery. Oh, that's right. Uh, the passives are actually uh, important to some level to unlock the active skills, too. Because uh, I think each base class has either 8 or 10 regular skills, and then each mastery class has, I don't know, 4 or 5 skills on top of that. But the way that you unlock those skills is by putting points into the passives of that class. Um, which is one of the interesting things is if you take a mastery, you still have access to some of the skills of the other masteries because uh, you can put up to like level 15 in their passives, which gives you half of the skills they have. Yeah, it's it's really a pretty elegant system. And I think what makes it extra elegant is how easy they make it to respec. Um, experimenting in this game has a staggeringly low cost compared to a lot of entries in this genre, and I really appreciated that. Um, you know, the ability to to respec on the cheap and just spend a couple hours, base or maybe maybe even just less than an hour to get back to where you were was very nice. You know, if you respec a skill you've had for a long time, the game will have you at a minimum sort of level, but that's based off of your character level, not how many points you're removing it doesn't like you take 12 points out of um i don't know like corpse explosion and you can put them into summon skeleton um 
you can just choose to re-specialize in summon skeleton then and you start off with say your minimum skill points are at four then and then your skills get experience points because you know they have their own skill tree so the more you use summon skeleton or the more experience you have well that's a specialized skill you start getting skill points in that skill tree again and I think with all the respecting, I did so much more respecting the second time around than the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, but that made it feel like there was always something I was progressing, even if it was trying out like, oh, let's try going down this path and seeing what this skill feels like if I give it a shot and try to make it like one of my main skills. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that the game could uh, possibly communicate a little better too. Like uh, in my first character, as you mentioned, I didn't respec a whole ton because I didn't necessarily know how low the bar was, and it is super low. It is on the ground. Um, you, <laughs> you can you can definitely um, respec as as much as you as your heart wants to until basically end game. And I feel like that is something that they should highlight and encourage a little more. I don't know how they would do that mechanically, but um, I found myself always having more fun when I was experimenting with a new build when I, you know, got a new skill and was like, oh, you know, or maybe I I just screwed up uh, skilling out my skill, for lack of a better word. I don't know what we're going to call this, advancing a skill, enhancing a skill. (laughs) It can't just be skilling a skill because that's too much skill. Sure as hell can be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I think that it needs to be well communicated that like experiment, 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 because that's what this game wants you to do. I think one of the things is that when you're going for your first build, your regular build, like you have a couple skills in front of you, A, B, and C, and you're like, I'll take skill B, and then you kind of ignore skill A and C completely. Like, you probably don't even read their skill trees besides a first glance to be like, oh, sure, this looks cool, or this one looks cooler. Um, But then you find skills later on Uh, you unlock skills as you level up and maybe those change what you think of the earlier ones because now you start to see a different combo or you look at the new skills yeah you look at the new skills tree and it's like well um when you when your fireball lands it's going to teleport you to that location and you're like oh oh yeah interesting yeah I, i think you're totally right and it almost behooves you to look at the final skills in each of the tree and decide like oh i want to work my way towards that because that'll synergize with this other final you know far out in the skill tree skill within this other skill too many instances of the word skill in this podcast already we're gonna I think one of the subtle UI changes they made, I'm not positive they made this because I haven't played this game in three years before this, Um, but I think what they did was they took a look at each skill tree, and it wasn't even just the terminal branches, uh, the terminal skills on the skill tree, but certain skills they would make a larger icon Mm, so that when mm -hmm. you're first going over there, you're like, oh, these are the ones they want me to take a look at first. And it's usually something that changes how the skill would get used or changes those implications for other skills or something like that. Like those are the, those aren't just like a 10% bonus damage. Those are like a, and now you are a bear. (laughs) (laughs) And now you're a bear. Yeah. I mean, that's almost how fundamental this changes for, for the way these um, skill upgrades change these skills. Like you could basically change like 
you know, you were changing to a wolf. Now you're changing to a bear. Um, I don't know if that's an exact, I didn't play the primalist. So I don't know if that's an, an accurate example, but I would, it, it is that drastic. Like, uh, it completely changes the context, but lest you think the only thing this game offers is skills upon skills. It is also very much an ARPG in terms of loot. Yep, you bash the goblins until the loot drops out of them. I, I think I heard someone describe this genre as loot pinatas, yes. which feels accurate. Agreed, yeah. Every time you down a big enemy or a boss or something and a bunch of multicolored loot drops out and maybe you see a green one in there or a gold one or a purple one, <laughs> then you're, then you Pretty know you're colors. really... Yeah, and then you know you're really... You know, in the money so to speak but this game does you know it follows pretty archetypical things you know you have your armors of various types your weapons uh it has this idol system which uh, i believe was implemented in one of the later diablo games possibly four but um it uh basically is a, a bunch of different sort of passive bonuses that you can join and combine uh which are in addition to all of your normal things like your belt and your gloves and your hat and your weapons mm-hmm yeah, d lots of different equipment you can mix and match over here. Uh, thinking about the looting, too, they had the filter system, which I thought was, you know, I was a casual player of this game. I think I clocked in at 40 hours total of those people who paid thousands of dollars for that Kickstarter. And I certainly hope they are enjoying uh, many, many <laughs> hours of the game. Um, but, like, the for the people who are really into the game and they don't want their screen cluttered up with useless garbage that pops up from the bosses uh you can filter items that show up based off of the attributes they have you don't have to like identify a magic item when you get it or not you just know what it is right away uh, so you can say i'm only interested in these things for my build and then you only see those things pop up uh, when you're looking to take loot and it's, it's even more than just, like, filtering by rarity. It's filtering by item type. It's filtering by class specificity. It's filtering by, like, so many different options that they put in these loot filters that you can uh, implement. It's almost like a mini, like, basic Boolean programming language. It's pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but after that, I think there's a couple more things about equipment and items that I want to hit on before we move on to uh, the forging mechanic, which I think we need to hit on next, having talked about equipment. But um, mm -hmm. potions uh, is one thing I want to hit on. Uh, there is no buying of potions. There is no, um, you know, uh, upgrading your potion capacity uh, permanently. It is all in the belt, and all potions are found out in the environment, and you have a pretty small amount. We're talking like one to five. Um, you're not going to be, like, propping your character up on just chugging super hyper potions. Um, you are going to have to actually have a viable build and potions will come along as they may, um, which I liked. I thought that was a, an elegant way to do this instead of having that just sort of be a perpetual thing you do when you go back to town. And for what it's worth, I didn't find myself going back to town as often because of this, which I liked. There are also no mana potions. <laughs> very true. Yeah, I didn't have to go back to town very often. I think part of it is um, partially due to the forging mechanic, but the items you find on the ground are less important. And I do specifically remember some changes between 2020 and now that helped um, alleviate some... I th felt this was a weakness of the game when I first played it. was like, I didn't really care about the items coming out of 
the bosses and whatnot. To some extent, I you know it's I I care, but I care less than I would for another uh, loot pinata game, um, <laughs> because you can kind of break items down to get their good attributes, the things you're looking for, not willy nilly, but enough so that um, if you're like, oh, I found this really awesome sword, but I'm a I'm a hammer guy. Um, you can still use the sword and hopefully get the things you're looking for out of it. Yeah, I think this is probably as good of a time as, as any to bring up the forging mechanic because it is so intertwined with like how the loot works in this game and why it's it continues to be valuable. Even the stuff, as you said, you can't use. Um, and the forging system, I think, is kind of the thing around which the high-level play in this game pivots. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. gotten there myself, but I can only imagine that like, you know, once you have a good, unique, uh, or you have like uh, a bunch of uniques and you have a build that you're working towards, the forging mechanic is kind of what allows you to enable that build. And it allows a lot more flexibility for doing so than most games of this type. Um, so let's lay it out. Um, every item you get in this game has a forging power attached to it. You just press F, you go into the forging menu, and you could see the game or the item's forging power. Higher is better. It's basically like the crafting base. And what you can do is basically take prefixes or affixes, that's what they call them, and add them to items. And this is kind of like the game's enchantment, enchantments that it will put on items. And you can enhance them to make them a higher level to do more. Um, it's it's really interesting how you can kind of find a weapon, and if it isn't exactly what you need, you can use a variety of glyphs. Uh, to remove the stuff you don't like about it and add the things you do like about it and then enhance it to hell and suddenly it's like the perfect weapon for your character if you play your cards right and get lucky. Um, And I think that's really an interesting way to handle like build enablement. And at the end of the day, what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, how all of these different ARPGs handle their end game loops, it's about making your build better. And uh, I will note for the record that me and Brian are very far away from this end game. I think I got um, maybe most of the way through Act 3, and maybe he's most of the way through Act 2. So we are not in the end game loop. We see it from a distance, I think. Um, And we... It exists, we know. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm kind of like looking ahead and seeing like how these systems interact and sort of thinking to myself about how they, how how all of this could work. And the forging system to me is like definitely one of the more interesting and unique things about this game in terms of how it's like presenting its mechanics. And I really like how almost everything you find, if it's a high enough level, can be used. Like you could break a weapon down and take its affix or its suffix and then it turns into a glyph and you can apply that glyph to say another weapon that has one or two affixes or suffixes that you like if it has the forging power that you need um it's just a it it kind of makes all the loot even if it's not exactly perfect a uh an additive to what could be the perfect weapon for you you know yeah yeah it's um those other things you find like if you find a rare weapon or something like that even if it's not something you're looking for it's still a rare thing and you can still like it can make your weapon a little bit closer to being uh a little bit better a little bit closer so it's like it's still a useful thing um i think the use of non-optimal items though like the things you're 
not looking for, not looking to replace. Like in that older version, 2020, um, it was like forging was more straightforward, maybe. Um, so really, it was about collecting the glyphs. And that's why I was saying, like, the items that dropped, I didn't care about them. I was just like, eh, glyphs. Get some glyphs here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I do like that they just have a, a glyph sweeper button where you you know you can mm. break down all of these equipments and things in your inventory and just sweep all the glyphs into a, a different inventory. You don't have to go back to town. You don't have to do anything. It's just out of sight, out of mind. When I'm ready to engage with that forging mechanic, they will be there waiting for me. It is a nice quality of life thing. Absolutely. Which is why you never have to go back to town, which is really <laughs> just downtime, right? Yeah, it is. There's. It's interesting because like, I like the loop of like, uh, you know, raid, get some loot, go back to town, sell what you don't need, equip what you do, stash what you might use for another character. Like, that's the classic Diablo loop. Um, or, you know, maybe if you're feeling generous, give one to a friend if they need it. Um, <laughs> and, and all of that still happens in this game. It just happens a lot less. Um, and I think that's probably for the best, right? Because really what we're here to do is to be on those raids. It's not to do inventory management. Well, with the uh, Diablo 2 that you're thinking of with that loop, you'd go back to the town to identify your items, too. Or I guess you have the Tome of Identification, too. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there was still a little bit more of like, oh, is there something good for me back in town now? This is going to sound like a little bit of a stretch, but the prefix affix, affix system and all of the like breaking down of items and feeding them to your favorite ones reminds me of gotcha games like modern mobile gotcha games. Um, hmm. What happens is like in those games, when you you know do a poll, you get a bunch of things, maybe weapons, maybe characters, what, what, what have you. And if they're not things that are useful to you, you feed them to the items or characters that you are using to power them up. And this is kind of like a less cynical or nakedly money-grubbing version of that. <laughs> um, and I, I, I kind of appreciate how it's taking the idea of like, yes, everything you're doing, even if it's not exactly perfect for your build, is contributing to the whole, um, but it's not doing it in a like preying upon people's addictive tendencies way, you know? I don't agree with gotcha games. Like, I don't think I designed one myself, um, but there are mechanics from there that can be useful to study and take a look at yes and and i think this is like a case in point of like there are pieces of that that are valuable and they can be implemented in ways that aren't gross so i recently started playing diablo 4 about the same time i was finishing up my second playthroughs of this i think the second time around i made sure to play every class some of them twice to see the different kind of like specs you could get into and everything um but right from playing that one into diablo 4 which felt like a very different game in some interesting ways i feel like the last uh epoch epoch the last epoch um kind of carries the torch of diablo 2 a little more like in that game you're the sort of whirlwind of destruction you come across enemies take them out and you're moving on to the next area i think uh diablo 4 takes a little more cues from uh world of warcraft and other online games and it seems like a more event focused sort of thing like they have their dungeons and their kind of like um you know like uh swarming events or things that happen and that feels like how that game's meant to be played feel that feels more modern in a way but i like uh the uh i like this game for it's kind of throwback style a little bit 
yeah, it's a journey at, at the at the end of the day, right? Like you are going from place to place, area to area, but it's all in a straight line. Um, and mm, mm-hmm. that that is very Diablo 2 reminiscent, as you said. And, and I think it's reminiscent of some of these other uh, types that I've played. You know, your Grim Dawn's Titan Quest is definitely the same way. Uh, Path of Exile, I haven't played in a long time, so I don't feel great talking about exactly what that game is now in today's day and age. But I recall uh. it being very similar to Diablo 2 in that way as well. Um, and um, I think the interesting comparison here, aside from sort of the structure and the way the game lays out quests, is sort of how they each handle um, builds and what you are manipulating in maybe not even endgame, but throughout the course of your quest. In Diablo 2, as you said, it's totally item-focused, right? Like, you you need to know from the outset, for one, there's no respects in Diablo 2. You need to know from the outset what your build's going to be and hope you find the item that supports that. Um, or, you know, find hmm. people on Battle.net and straight, uh, trade some Stones of Jordan for them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Legitimate ones, right? They didn't fall off the back of a truck. Yes, exactly. You never want those stolen Jordans. Um <laughs> in real life or in Diablo 2. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in um, Titan Quest, I thought like the class combos and the permutations you could find between them was an interesting way for them to do build specificity. Like there was a lot of interesting things that they did with that. Did you play that one, by the way? Again, for about an hour or two. Okay. So hardly enough to get into the class combinations. Yeah. Um you know, we could even go into something like Borderlands with this. Like that was another really item-focused version of this, albeit it was an FPS and not like a uh, ARPG. But it had the same sort of stuff. There were skills. Uh, they were less impactful, I would say, than anything in like say this game or, or Diablo. But um, the loot was the main thing. Finding that weird gun that would enable your your build. Um, all these ARPGs, like to me, they they all sort of revolve around like how are you able to make your build and in this game i thought the combination of the skills within skills and forging like offers a huge world for you to explore in terms of build enablement oh for sure for sure especially since um depending on what your build is if you respec into something that's different enough then like all of your uh glyphs or all the forging stuff you probably haven't been using the ones focused on that. So you, you've just been stockpiling a bunch of them for trying out another build here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really smart. Like, um, one of the reasons I keep harping on Grim Dawn, and I guess this is going to be, uh, listen, if you're out there, go play Grim Dawn. Um, <laughs> it, it has a, a constellation system in it. So basically, like, as you level up, you gain access to the ability to, like, complete constellations. And it's sort of a skill tree-esque system and they have like massive synergies with the skills of your character it's just um it's a neat system as well um and i think it's a rather unique one in terms of like build enablement in the arpg genre and uh, for what it's worth i think this one probably at this point i don't think it's the best one of these that i've played but it definitely has probably the most robust build enablement system one of the things i think was most impressive with this, especially the second time I went through, was that kind of like respecking. Like, um, I felt like I was doing that much more, either like trying a whole different build or kicking out one skill to try another one. I felt like my character was always in motion in mm-hmm. a way. Like I never got solidified into a build. Yeah. And there were so many interesting combinations to discover that um 
I don't know. I had a lot of fun, like considering what would be a fun skill to take with this other skill I was going to try. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Cause it, it was sort of like a continual construction, destruction, rebuilding of your character throughout the entire time of, of my playthrough. Did you ever do wheel throwing back in high school? Oh, pottery. Yeah. yeah I thought yeah, this yeah. was some weird track and field thing. <laughs> you take some tires and you chuck them. I don't know what you guys did. <laughs> no, but it, it was kind of like that in ceramics and, you know, wheel throwing. Like, you have this piece of clay and, like, you try and form a lip and you fuck it up. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, smash it down, start <laughs> over again. <laughs> and you're just sort of slowly but surely, like, figuring out, like, how exactly to mold this thing into a vase that will not uh, self destruct upon falling into a <laughs> demon or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yes, yeah, suck, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah very much so like um it does feel like especially once you learn that you should be respecting in this game uh it feels like there's always possibilities out there um it, it takes a long time to get to the point where you've unlocked all the skills for a single mastery class um so there's always a new skill tree coming down the line mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a really nice loop um and again like i i do wish like one of us at least had, had gotten a little further into Endgame to talk a little bit about how all of our theories about how it works play out. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, um, you know, for what it's worth, we, we all we both played in excess of a dozen or several dozen in your case hours of this game, and um, it held up. Like it's fun. It's not like a it's not a premium price game in terms of it. You know, it's not sixty bucks, um, and it's it's a blast. I I think that alone is reason to check it out for sure so we mentioned that this game has multiplayer but not from the beginning uh this was only a recent update to it and i think i saw a chart that showed that their concurrent users jumped really spiked after they added this in so it was a hmm. good idea um especially because you know the game was so finished and polished at that point too yeah i mean honestly like like i'm surprised this was so far down their development timeline and i think from a technical perspective it makes sense but from like a marketability perspective like this is the type of game that you expect to be able to play with friends right yeah i i think the spike is absolutely warranted because this is a game that's begging for multiplayer and uh i'm glad to see it's fairly well implemented based on what we've both experienced uh i you know i can speak for myself but i think you had a similar situation to me we, we both had a good time playing together in this game yeah oh for sure for sure i remember playing this the first time online and realizing that we had our own instances of loot mm-hmm. and being like oh that's cool wait why didn't every game before this do that? I, I know it's pretty common these days, um, but like taking a look back, like why would you make a you know party of five people decide who gets the good <laughs> item and the loot pinata game? Yeah, yeah, that was always the interesting thing about Diablo two, right? Because if you <laughs> if you hadn't say um, transposed the uh, image file of this the Diablo 2 CD onto your computer so it could be accessed, then you would have to wait for your CD drive to spin up every time a major boss dropped loot. And that would mean in online play, you were never getting any loot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Speed hacks. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And and obviously, like, we're talking about, like, 1999 problems here. But um, I agree with you that, like, instance loot is, it's a thing that other games have done. But I'm really glad to see it implemented well here. Um, and it does still have a system for, like, gifting and trading and, and things of that nature. So, you know, all of the, the normal things have been included. Um, I wouldn't say they're, like, necessarily, when we played, like, super polished, there's some delays or some, you know, chugging and some latency. But overall, it functions. I never had anything, like, lost to the void when I tried to trade it to you from my recollection. There is an interesting feature in the game that if... Uh, I find a sweet sword that I'm like, oh, Brian's sword dude would love this sword. Um, <laughs> I can only give it to you if you were on my game when it dropped. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that wrinkle, but that is actually kind of smart. There's not going to be a huge marketplace for secondhand goods or anything. Uh, they're not going to have to, you know, expect that the top tier players playing the end game have been... S- maxed out that like yeah, it's not just the time they put in but maybe the money they put in too to mm. the game on the second hand market uh but i think it also gives it a little more of a homey feel to it too like you can share with people who were there when they were there there but it's like um easier for balance and everything figuring somebody's they're playing act three they should be about this high in the power curve in terms of how powerful they are I think that's interesting from a couple angles because one, like if you can trade any item that's ever dropped in the game ever with anyone who's ever played it ever, then you suddenly have like a massive world of all of these quote unquote unique items floating around in the ether that will, you know, coalesce into, as you said, like people that are willing to pay for them. Um, But if it's only sort of a situation where you have to be there to obtain them, whether or not you're the one specifically who got it, then that pool shrinks drastically and it enforces the scarcity that the items are made to have, I guess. Yeah. It also encourages online play to, um, yeah, you're doubling your chances at loot. That's a great point. Exactly. Yeah. Like if I've already got the sweet, the kick-ass item, like the heart of the Oak or whatever the equivalent is in this game. And you're looking for one for your build, then like, Hey, both of us uh, can... Yeah, twice as many people can have a chance to drop that. And if you have a party of four, four times as many people have a chance for the big bad enemy to drop that. That's a that's mm-hmm. an excellent point. Um, it drastically... That's basically a four times luck multiplier every time you're partying with a group of four. Uh, one of the things that I thought was another um, interesting decision they made, I feel like the game wasn't too difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I... In my last playthrough, which probably was about 15 to 20 hours, um, I probably died twice that whole time across all the different builds and respecking and everything. I don't think they were trying to make it a difficult game, though. I'm sure people have made it a difficult game or, you know, add some modifiers onto it or something like that. But I think their base level of difficulty was a little more like kind of just mow down everyone who's coming at you. I never felt like I was under leveled and I never grinded anything. Agreed. And I like that. Like I would, I like to be able to feel like I'm always making progress forward and not running into a wall. Um, I remember like first or second time through uh, Diablo two act three, that jungle being hellacious. And um, (laughs) 
you know, like obviously in subsequent playthroughs as you know, you're experienced and you know what your build is going for, it, it, it becomes less of an issue. But I think there's something to be said about like being able to make it through a playthrough first time with low friction and um, being able to just continue to see what the game has on offer. And then the complexity is in the difficulty and the end gaminess of it comes in at end game where it should. Mm-hmm. You can make the enemy numbers go up real high for the end game people. Give them something to do still. And with that, let's talk about some three word reviews. My three word review for Last Epoch is Crafty Dungeon Crawler. Last Epoch is a crafty implementation of the classic hack and slash dungeon crawler in two regards. One, it has a very interesting campaign hook with a high fantasy time travel twist, very chrono trigger as we've said, and to see how the world evolved or rather devolved over time, especially on that gorgeous world map, was a highlight for me. Two, the game is genuinely crafty with its approach in crafting and specifically forging. This is the crux of the game's mechanical peak for me, and a major differentiator from genre peers like Path of Exile or Diablo. Every game in this genre needs a hook for how its endgame builds are able to be created and enabled, and this is a pretty novel way to do it in my book. This game gets a thumbs up from me. It's a recommendation now, and given it's still in early access, I can only imagine I'll recommend it more strongly as it continues to mature. Very nice. All right, my three-word review for The Last Epoch was Respect the Respec. The Last Epoch was one of my top ten favorite games played in 2020. Three years later, here we are, and the game is still in early access. However, the new multiplayer beta was a great time to jump back in. The game has aged well since I last played with quality-of-life features, noticeable and invisible, rounding off some of the rougher edges. The game's, still, um, the game's skill system is still the star of the show. Interestingly, I found I was respecking more often than I did on my first playthrough, I think partly because I had more experience with the game, but I also feel like the extra time and development in EA helped nudge people to doing that more. It seemed like I would often unlock a skill that made me reconsider an er earlier specialization. And the respect itself never felt like a burden, which is not an easy thing to accomplish. Along with the game's comparatively breezy difficulty, I found myself respecting nearly at the drop of a hat in order to try out a fresh skill or just to have a change of pace. It felt like I was always making progress on my build in a meaningful way, and I never felt like I was trapped by my past decisions. I certainly learned to respect the respec. Mm-hmm. Respect the respec is probably our joint three-word review, because I think that is uh, one of the highlights to me as well. I think if we were to put this, like, three pillars of, like, why this works as an ARPG, it would be, like, that forging mechanic, skill density, and the respec ability. But with that, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks who think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch with us, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on respecting your character. <laughs>
one thing that I felt that the last uh, epoch, the last epic, epic, epoch, 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 epoche, <laughs> epoche, the last <laughs> epoche. Um, it had bosses, but I felt like it didn't have great or standout bosses. Like I don't know if I could necessarily. I think boss. I remember one boss from the game. Two bosses. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. Like, And again, I'm going to just fall back to the old tried and true Diablo 2. They did a thing with, like, there are the prime evils. You are going to face them at some point throughout your, your quest here. I remember them to this day. Mephisto, Diablo, Bale, and, and Ariel. She was a, not a prime evil, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> it's it's interesting though because like nothing else has sort of hit that level of memorability to me, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what the reason for that is. Like there are definitely games with good bosses. Like I can name all of the prime bosses in say your Dark Souls, but that's because I've internalized that game's lore and I love the world and and all that good stuff. Um, similarly for Elden Ring, I think like this game maybe if there is a place that it's lacking it is that it's like setting the stage for all of the background lore i know it's out there like it exists but i don't think it's like front streeted enough and that's fine this is not the genre for that it needs to be Uh simpler like diablo 2 did it i think part of it comes from certain genre conventions around combat um in this game when you take damage you just take damage like maybe there's a stun effect applied or maybe there's a poison or something else but for the most part your health bar just drops by a certain percentage um i feel like they almost needed to make the bosses more punishing and maybe more like maneuverability sort of based Hmm. like um you should be dodging you should be thinking about where you're moving a little more maybe like um I do know they. I saw some parts where they telegraphed AOE attacks from the bosses. Yeah. And that was it was okay, but I never felt like. I I remember when I was playing multiplayer with you, I was just like, eh, I could move out of the way, but I'm just not going to. But I'm doing a lot of damage if I just stay right here. <laughs> I'm lazy. I'm gonna take the hit. Yeah, no, I I feel you on that. It is definitely a situation where. It, it goes along with your point about this game being not too difficult in its like main campaign. And I think that's by design. Like this is the Nintendo strategy, right? Like getting to end game is the start of the game. Yeah. Maybe things change when you're hitting those high levels, but I feel like part of it is that so many of the skills, I'd say nearly all of the skills you have in this game are all active sort of skills. Like you do a thing. And even if that thing is just putting up a shield, you don't have like um, reactive skills, like a dodge that you mentioned earlier would be an example of a reactive skill, even if it's not a skill tree skill or something like that. You have not played a rogue. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, but if I was a rogue, I'd probably sit there and take it either. Just keep shooting my bow into them. Oh, you're close. Great. I'm not going to hit miss. I would say I did not do that specifically because I couldn't. And they gave me two very good options for how to combat that. There was uh, there was a creation of like a decoy that was a really interesting skill to use. And then there was also, as you mentioned, a dodge skill. Uh, so both of the things that you're t- 
talking about here as being sort of absent, perhaps, in other characters. Again, haven't played too many characters in this game, but um, they are present in the Rogue. So maybe that's something to check out if you're going to revisit this game. I had a great time playing the Rogue, so give it a go. Did you feel like you were using them? Yes, all the time. It was like a core part of my build was throw out a decoy, coalesce the enemies around it, decoy blows up, causes a bunch of damage, then I blast them with my most powerful bow skill as a after shock situation. It was Okay. It was a core tenet of how I approached like large groups and did crowd control. Okay, maybe that would be worthwhile. But yeah, I feel like uh I don't know, it felt like the bosses were never heavy enough. So the bosses were a situation where the rogue, I think, maybe struggled a little bit because I was fragile. And for what it's worth, the decoy works great and it works on everything. Everything will attack the decoy first before they even pay attention to you. So as long as I could keep enough decoys out there, and very specifically, I chose a skill that doubled my decoy capacity, um, (laughs) would allow me to just sort of throw something out and just like in the background, keep shooting it. Um, And then decoy blows up throw up my other one by that point the first one's recharged and just you know i could basically just keep them focused on that and um continue to blow things up while i, I basically created like the the decoy explosion archer was my build <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a fun one it was it was fun I, I like and again like you could make any number of builds like that with a uh, even just the rogue glass in this game like i think that's one of the things that i like most about it was like build variety seemed off the charts numerous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and maybe that goes in like again I, I think the game wasn't trying to be the most difficult thing to get through um, if the game was more difficult then the number of viable builds would drop from that and at the end of the day it's like, less fun for this game exactly I'm not here for that I'm here for like let me make this goofy ass build and see if it works <laughs> <laughs> 